Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44, the Old Testament. And the last time the message was titled, God is Faithful. You know, even when we're faithless, God is always faithful. Even when we're, you know, we have our down times and maybe we disappoint Him at times, but He's always there for us. You know, He's always that solid mooring point that we can look to. Uh, This morning the message is titled, Up Close and Personal. It's actually a, a phrase and, you know, in our vernacular and in our culture, we always come up with different phrases and, and things like that. And up close and personal is um, law enforcement, right? Also the military. It's people who are engaged in a profession where you, unfortunately, at times have to deal with difficult people. You have to get into their personal space. They're in your personal space. And it evokes a feeling of uncomfortableness. Okay, there's some type of conflict. Now, what Jesus did was, what I love about Jesus, and I try to emulate what he does, is he would speak about parables. He would speak about things that we were all familiar with, and he would make a comparison to the spiritual world. So we would make that bridge from what we know to what we don't know. So up close and personal, where I'm going with this is that uh, there's going to be things that we're going to read in this chapter that are going to get us to take an introspective look, to look at ourselves to maybe pull us out of our comfort zones, to put us front and center with where God is, what He wants, what He desires, His calling us to salvation, and we make that decision. Do I want to continue living the life that I'm living, or, you know, God is, He's in my personal space, and I say that in a good way, because He's always always calling His children back, right? So as we look at the Scripture, yes, there's a lot of information for the Israelites, but there's also things for us as well. So we're going to look at this in five parts. Isaiah 44, starting with verse 1. It says, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. And floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. So let's take a look at this. One out of five is, remember... This, this is, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and initially the way it was written, it was one long continuous scroll, right? So for the sake of time and convenience, I'll break it up into chapters. It was broken up into chapters many centuries ago, but this is a continuing theme as we go through this book, as we go through this prophetic work, uh, the theme of careful creation, right? Of ownership, of intimate relationship between God and his people. Verse 1 and 2, he says, I chose you. It's very personal. I made you. I formed you. 
and I will help you. And in the New Testament, I've spoken about a lot of New Testament counterparts. God doesn't change how he does business. He doesn't change his love. He still loves the whole world, and that's why he sent his son to die for our sins. But our God is a personal God. Now, this word jeshurun, or in the Hebrew yeshurun, actually means upright one, which is a little odd. It's not used that many times in the scripture because the people of Israel came from, well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Jacob. Jacob, his name initially meant supplanter. So here you go from a nation or from a, a sort of a father of the nation who is considered a supplanter, it's a negative really name, if you had that name it wouldn't be very flattering, to Yeshurun or upright one. And you know what, folks? This is God who sees what we can be, right? And we may look in the mirror, or we may look at the mistakes we've made. The older we, we get, the more life we've lived, the more mistakes we've made. We may tend to get down on ourselves, but God looks at us for what we can be. And that's beautiful. I can almost see some of them reading it go, we're upright one, us? But it's the work that God was going to do in them. Now, contextually, remember, these people were captives in the Babylonian kingdom. They were taken over many years ago. And God is going to release them from this captivity in Babylon and allow them to go back to Jerusalem, which is very, very exciting. Right? So he's pumping them up, right? He's, it's like coaching. You know? This is a pep talk to his people. Very exciting. Verses 3 and 4, he says, I'll pour water on the thirsty. I'll flood the dry ground. He'll pour his spirit on their descendants. So this post-Babylon generation of Israelites that returned home, it was exciting. They were spirit-filled. They were productive. They were psyched to go back home and to rebuild their city, the wall, the temple. Really, really neat. Now, what I always do in the scripture is on one of my notes, what do I want to accomplish every Sunday? In my notes, one of the things I have, a reminder, is to, to see Jesus in the Old Testament. So let's go now to John 4, John 4, verse 10. And we can see, again, another New Testament counterpart because the Holy Spirit was, uh, or water was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And this is really neat because Jesus is sitting by a well in, in a pretty dry area and a woman comes and she's, she's an immoral woman, she's a pagan, and he strikes up a conversation trying to build a bridge with her and asks her to give him, and that was an honor, give me a drink of water. Right? Different customs back then. And she's shocked that he, as an observant teacher, would even con- con- converse with her. So let's check this out. Jesus answered and said to her, so she's fixated on H2O, and he's fixated on the Holy Spirit. They both have the word water, but his understanding and meaning of water, he's got to bring her to that level. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, referring to himself, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now watch her response. The woman said to him, sir... (laughs) You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, this H2O, will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And there's a great conversation that takes place. And he brings her from the physical to the spiritual. Also jumping to John 7, verse 37, he speaks this now more in a public setting at one of the feasts of Israel. He's speaking aggregately to the people who were listening to him. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm going to tell you, at the pulpit, I always have water. I get thirsty. And listen, I've been drinking water for 50 years, I'm sure, as you have. Uh, And it does a temporary job, but you have to keep drinking it. Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of the time where we would believe in Christ and His, His dying on the cross for our sins and he would, 2 Corinthians 1, we would be sealed with the Holy Spirit, a forever thing. We don't have to keep, you know, the Holy Spirit's always with us. Now, today, unfortunately, um, many pray for material blessings. That's all they think about. That's in their repertoire. But in Luke 11, Jesus says to believers, he goes, as much as you ask the Father for his Holy Spirit, he'll give you the Holy Spirit. I've got to check myself, you know, in my prayer life. Am I constantly asking for more of the Holy Spirit? Right? So you might think, well, I want a new car, and I want an addition on my house, I want a promotion. But we, we miss out on what Jesus is trying to say, how we become fulfilled, right? By praying for more of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily material things. Uh, God desires to pour out His Spirit on those who are spiritually dry as one pours out water onto a parched ground to hydrate it. You see ground, it gets these cracks in them, it gets dry, it gets hard. Watch what happens when it rains. And little by little, it becomes filled with life and things start to grow out of that ground. Great analogy that the Lord uses. Verse 5, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will write on his own hand about himself, the Lord's. And again, this is this post-Babylon generation revival. It's It's a great revival he's speaking of. Now some look forward and see Gentile inclusion in the church through Jesus Christ. Right? The Gentiles come in to this new work called the church. Very exciting. But the question is, can we say, I am the Lord's? Now, I can. I don't say that out of pride or arrogance. I say it because it's something that God has promised me in the Scripture. And you can do the same. You know, where are you? Are you... Listen, there's a lot of Americans that are part of the Christian culture. They not really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They come to church for various reasons. They wear a cross, call themselves Christians for various reasons, but they don't really have an honest-to-goodness, literal relationship with the Lord. You know, and and God wants us to take us from that cultural Christianity and make us a true follower of Christ. The question is, are you thirsty? If you don't know the Lord, are you thirsty for Him? You know, we should we live in a culture that should be. It's so dry spiritually. We live in a culture that should be thirsting for the Lord. And some are thirsting and they try to fill it with material things and don't realize that it's the Lord that's going to fill them, right? 
Verse 6, continuing on, Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who, co- who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appoint the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So two out of five is God is reinforcing. And again, we see this in Isaiah. He's reinforcing that he's the only God. There's no such thing as uh, polytheism. There's only one God. And a lot of people think that they're praying to different gods and their their words or they fall on deaf ears. There's only one God, right? He uses eternality. He uses prophecy as proofs. If you would, turn with me to Micah 5.2. Now, this is interesting. We're going to go a little bit deeper. You know, these are questions that Christians or new believers or seekers ask. So this is actually going to be a little bit deeper today than usual because eternality, what is that? Well, Micah 5.2, and we read this a lot at Christmas. Even commercialized Christianity has little snippets from Micah 5.2, but they don't go the distance with this verse. It says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, oh, we know that Jesus was, as a baby, was born in Bethlehem. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And sometimes people, their mind is just shut off from this point. However, the rest of it is extremely powerful. Whose, speaking of the Messiah, Son of God coming to earth, whose going forths have been from old or ancient times from everlasting. Wait a minute, he was a baby in the manger. How could he be old? He just was born. What the Bible is sharing with us is that this was when the Son of God became fully man, came to the earth. Right? He had to come in the bloodline of Adam to die for our sins. There was a whole legal process that had to take place. But Christ, the Son of God, lived. He was, he was never not here. You know, he was from eternity. And that's what that word means at the end. From everlasting, the Hebrew word is olam, which means from eternity. He always existed. A lot of weird teachings out there about Jesus. Probably the most weird um, there's a, there's a whole plethora of them because Satan tries to get people to be deceived about the truth that can save them. But before he was a babe in the manger, he was from eternity. Here, let me throw a little mind twister at you. The Mary holding Jesus as a baby, right? That baby, before God came in the form of a baby, was the one that created that Mary that held the baby. <laughs> oh, you're all awake. I can hear the groans. Oh, that was, uh... But it's, it's an interesting thing to look at. The babe at the, in the manger. He wasn't just born then. He was God incarnate, right? In the form of man. Prophecy is the hallmark of proving God exists. And you can get all the holy books you want or religious books. And I have a whole, when I was on my search in my 20s, I got them all. Well, most of them. <laughs> just so many of them out there. And I would go through them and there would be no prophecy. No predicting of the future. Or some would actually predict the future multiple times and be wrong. Right? What is God's uh, standard for prophecy? 
predicting the future, uh, either foretelling or foretelling, is Deuteronomy 18, 100% of the time, because God's perfect. If he's truly speaking through a man or a woman, everything they say will come 100%. And God's saying if they get one wrong, I don't care if it's a thousandth of a percent, if you read the scripture, God's like, I haven't sent them because I don't make mistakes. God's the only one who knows the future. So if it's a true prophet, they'll, they'll A, prophesy, and B, they'll never be wrong. So it's a little, little good proof text there. And verse 6, this is powerful. If we could put that, that image up of the wheel. It says, I hope you've had your coffee this morning. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord and the Lord. This is, this is important. So if you look at Deuteronomy or if you look at Exodus, Moses is like, oh, I just met you, God. You know, the burning bush. I've got to lead the people. Who do I say sent me? And he says in Hebrew, yod heh What? <laughs> that means God says, I don't have a name like Joe or Fred. I have an expression of who I am. And that, those Hebrew words called the, the tetragrammaton, or the, yeah, the continental te- tetragrammaton, basically what God is saying, I've always existed, always will exist. What's your name? I've always existed and will always exist. That's such a sacred name that even Orthodox Jews today will say Hashem in Hebrew, which means the name, because they don't want to mispronounce yod heh wav and, and they're a, a fear of blaspheming, blaspheming him by accident. You see what I'm saying? So what God is saying, I'm God and my Redeemer God. Now, I went into a bunch of different, uh, I'm a lot better with Greek than I am with Hebrew, but thanks to Audrey back there, I have the Hebraic Roots Bible, and I went right into the Hebraic Roots Bible, and it says it's the same thing. God says, I'm God, and my Redeemer is God. So before the Lord Jesus ever came to the earth, the Father already said he's coming, fully God, fully man. So anybody who tells you that Jesus is not God or never claimed to be God, really, really challenge that type of teaching. Uh, so what we find out in this kind of wheel thing is, and this is interesting because this was developed by a group that was in the Jehovah Witnesses for decades. They were high up in the echelon, and they left because God showed them the truth. And they, after studying the Scripture, they're like, you know, what we were taught all these years was wrong. And what they found is that Jesus is, Yahweh is the, you put some vowels in with yod heh wav and you, you, you can pronounce it Yahweh or Yahweh. Jehovah is really not a good name. It actually comes from a Latin transliteration. It's not good at all. But what it says is that everything that the Father said he was in the Old Testament, Jesus said he was in the New Testament. So Jesus is either a charlatan or he truly is God in the flesh. It's neat. So if you kind of look at a, a, a triangle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where the Son part is, S-O-N, of that point, it tangentially touches a circle, which is humanity. So you have Father, Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When he comes down to earth, he's fully God and fully man. So listen, some people struggle with this. I get it. I'm here to teach. Um, some people just say, I love God. I don't really care what you're saying. And that's fine too, you know what I'm saying? I get it. I understand it for the most part. I don't need to reiterate it. I'm just, I'm hitting the highs and I'm hitting the people who are new believers. So I have to feed everybody up here. Uh, But it's really neat stuff when you start to think about it. Verse 8, 
He, so this is very important. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Father. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But they're th- three distinct, but they're also, they also make up God. Not hard to understand. You're looking at a guy up here who has flesh, right? Who has a spirit, which you can't see, and who has a mind. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't sleep really well, so I hope it's working really well right now. But I am, I am Joe, but I'm also three in one. So even when he made people, he kind of made a signature after his own creation or his own, strike, strike that, his own existence. So fun stuff. Verse 8, he says, do not fear or be afraid. And again, the, there's an inverse relationship with intimately knowing God and fear. And we can be, and me, I can be too, at any particular day, it's an inverse relationship. The more I'm tied in with God, the more I'm seeking Him, the fear goes down. If I'm full of fear, I'm, I'm, I'm somehow, because of me, I'm somehow not really close to Him at that moment. So He says this often in, in His Scripture. You know me. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. Do not fear. And this is, this is something that we have to, we have to investigate. Title is up close and personal. Some of you might have come in here for the first time and you're like, whoa, I didn't expect this. You know, Christianity today, a lot of Christian ministries are entertainment industries. It's great. You can check your mind at the door. You can come into church. You could be excited. You could laugh. You could be wowed. And then you go home and just forget about it. But you felt good, right? That's not what we're supposed to be doing as a church. If you look at the original church and how it was started, we come together, we worship together, we pray together, we fellowship together, we partake of communion together, and we study the Word together. So you might have come in here and said, wow, I actually, as, I'm, as he's speaking, and he's speaking about the Word, I'm feeling personally that uh, there's a little introspection going on. I'm thinking about my own life. Do I really have a relationship with the Lord, or am I part of the tr- Christian culture? Did I grow up in a denomination, but I really don't know the Lord? And the beautiful thing is you can know the Lord. Right? It's, that's extremely important. Verse 9, part 3 of 5, he continues, he says, those who make a graven image. Now, he's going to change directions, follow this, and he goes into detail of people who are idol worshipers. Those who make a graven image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or cast a graven image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, yet they shall be ashamed together. The uh, Revelation tells us that idol worshippers will not receive the kingdom of heaven. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. So he drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He hews down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest, he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. This is the whole, what God is saying is, I see what people do. I'm God, I see everything. So he sees the idol worshipers who, you know, maybe they 
plant a plant or they go into the forest, they cut a tree down with part of the wood they use to bake their bread. Then they take a nice little block of wood and they start fashioning out an idol. You know, a man carving it. Just some very talented sculptors and carvers that I've seen. What incredible things they could do with a piece of a tree. So he, he continues, Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. So he bakes his bread with some of the wood. He warms himself with some of the other wood, right? Primitive societies. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. Third part of it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts or roasts and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, the carved image. Then he falls down before it and worships it prays to it and says, deliver me, you are my God. You just made this piece of wood. Now, listen, let's not be too quick to make fun of these people because we just have different idols today, right? We're very technologically advanced and we're so enlightened and, you know, there's forces trying to push America into post-Christianity because we're so smart, you know, and they're archaic and the Bible's old and all these ridiculous things that people say. Idol worship has has changed. It's still idol worship, right? So three out of five is the foolishness and the condemnation of idol worship. The Egyptians had Ra, was it, they had all these different, um, different gods, and one was the sun god. But here there's an expression in, in our culture. You ever hear the expression sun worshiper? S-U-N? There's a lot of people in our culture that worship the sun. You know what I'm saying? Um... You go to the doctor's office and check your skin and they'll tell you how to protect your skin from the sun. And what people do is they, they make their whole lifestyle around the S-U-N, especially this time of the year. Folks, I got news for you. In Revelation 22, when God remakes the heavens and the earth, there is no S-U-N. Read it. You know who there is? The Lord. And the Lord gives His light. And we rejoice in his light, but the S-U-N is not needed anymore. What is the sun good for, the S-U-N? Well, it gives light. And its light helps with the photosynthetic process with the vegetation. Okay, So there's, there's life from the S-U-N. It gives us heat. It's also a mooring point for our solar system. It keeps the earth from hurtling out into the far reaches of the universe and we all freeze to death. So we love the sun, but the sun is temporary. You know, and, and people do. They, they worship whatever. I, I say this, whatever you put most of your money, energy, time, and heart into might be your God, but it might not be God. So do we worship the S-U-N or do we worship the S-O-N? It should be the latter. Question is, why would somebody make a false God? It's very simple. It's very simple because you get to set the parameters of how you want to worship. Think about that. There's only two ways to worship. The right way, which is asking God, what do you want from my life? You made me. That's an awesome thing. What's my purpose, Lord? That's the right way. The other way is to say, I'll hedge my bets. I'll do some religious rituals, some rites. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll do things. I'll give money. I'll do all this kind of stuff. But I want to kind of keep God at an arm's distance. So people make false, uh, false idols and false gods because they want to determine how they're going to worship God, right? You, come, you hear a sermon, you come to a funeral, and you're, you're presented with the truth of eternity, 
the truth of our own mortality that one day we're going to die. What a lot of people do in funerals, they're moved. They hear the gospel. They walk out the door, they go to sleep the next morning, they wake up and they put it out of their minds. They don't want to think about it. A relationship with God, I don't have time for that. You know what I'm saying? Who's got time for that? But it's true. It's true. And it's sort of this cognitive dissonance to have two mutually exclusive beliefs, but you're trying to rectify the stress and the tension from contradictory beliefs, so you do things to assuage or attenuate that frustration. So the one is you get close to believing that there really is a God. He has a purpose for your life. He wants a relationship with you. But the other part is you have a lifestyle that has no room for God or it keeps him at arm's distance. I have a good friend, and I put my messages on my Facebook wall because I have a lot of friends that don't know the Lord. I love him. I really do. And he's probably going to be listening tomorrow. I don't know. He does comment sometimes on my wall, so he knows who, who it is. I don't say names. And he's trying to convince me of, of aliens, you know, little green men, and, you know, there is no God. And I'm like, bro, that's, that's a real stretch of faith when you think of God and what he's done. And I'm going to kind of prove some of this to you uh, through prophecy. And we get into these deep discussions, and, you know, every time I get close, he, he completely changes the subject. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you keep doing that to me. Let's stay. You ask me a question, I'm giving you the answer. So one day we were together and talking, and uh, I said, listen, bro, I'm just going to cut to the chase. You're a player. You're, he's a young guy. I said, you like to be a player. I said, and your little green men, if they're, really, they're real, they don't care what you do with your life and your lifestyle. But God does. And you might have to change some things that you do in your lifestyle. And he looked at me and he said nothing. Completed. Listen, I read people. I said, I get what you're doing. You're a player. You like being a player. And this is what you want to continue to do. So your little green men are not going to hold you accountable. That was the end of the conversation. But it's this cognitive dissonance. You get close. You get proven the truth of it. Oh, listen, I'm no genius. I'm just following, right, coach? I'm following the playbook here. That's the playbook that God gives us. All the wisdom is found in here. You take this book away from me, and I'm just another babbling fool who has an opinion on the earth. So very important stuff to look at. <laughs> Turn into the true and living God. Verse 18, continuing on. He says, They do not know, nor do they understand for he, God, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked my bread on the coals. I have roasted meat, right? The same piece of wood, the same tree, must have been a big one, because he does a lot of things with them, right? I have roasted meat and eaten it, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul. Nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So you're holding the idol that you just made, real pretty, looks like a person, dressed it up, maybe put some cloth on it and made some nice features. There's your little God. And he, and he doesn't say to himself, is there not a lie in my right hand? Four, the abject stupidity of idol worship. Now, verse 18 seems to indicate that God is the one who's shutting their eyes. Well, well, that's not fair, is it? Why would God do that? If you would turn with me to Romans 1, 18. A lot in here. Romans 1, 18. 
as a New Testament counterpart. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hold down the truth. It's done purposely. Because what we what may be known of God is manifest in them. It is revealed. It's evident. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they end up, well, I'll continue, 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who who was blessed forever. Amen. So they start to... Listen, I, I raise bees, and when you're really, <laughs> I can be up here for hours talking about the little insect and the engineering feats in the dark that they do inside the hive, and they, they, they don't speak to each other, and you go into any hive, and it's the same hexagonal display that conserves wax but gives strength. It's the perfect use of wax that's exuded from their chest uh, with their six legs and how they put it together. They do things that engineers today can't do. Engineers can do a lot of things today, then shut the lights off and tell them not to speak. Let's see if they can build anything. Right? That's the bee. The ant? I mean, come on. Bugs. So what God is saying is, you, you, God is saying is my signature is everywhere. You can look at a bug. You can look at a plant. The more science takes apart the plants and sees the photosynthetic reaction. This happens in a leaf? This is insane. This is incredible. But what people do is, they exchange the truth for the lie, and they flip it. Well, again, I have to be accountable to God. I have to submit to a God. I may have to change some of you know, my life, so cognitive dissonance. Well, let me serve the bug. You know, let me serve the plant or the half-God, half-animal. And God's like, no, you see my signature there, but you're purposely not wanting to... You're, you're excluding me, so you do these odd things and make it look religious. Rites and rituals. Churches, you go on Sunday... Do this, say that, put this money in the basket. You're good for the week. We'll see you next Sunday or Christmas and Easter. I don't know. Uh, But it's a ritual. It's not a relationship with the living God. God wants our hearts. Now, so what we look see is that it it does seem like God has shut their eyes. But check this out. With Pharaoh and the children of Israel, the Bible kept saying, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. So God, it says at the end, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He just kept them in that state. And uh, the children of Israel were able to leave Egypt, and it was a great witness to even the Egyptians. you got to be careful when you hear the truth and reject it. Because eventually, and I liken it to, over time, you keep rejecting the truth, you keep rejecting the truth. What you do is you take your heart and your soul, and you encase it in, in a concrete tomb, and let it there suffocate and die. That's just my analogy. Um, You've got to be careful with that. Hear the truth, hear the truth, hear the truth. What do you do with the truth? You can keep rejecting it, but you can also be in that state where now you can't understand the truth. It's not a good place to be. 
the great tragedy is the idols of achievement. That's the United States, especially this area. Overeducated fools. And I, listen, I went to a good school and graduated, believe it or not. Uh, but there are those that are so educated, it almost sounds like an oxymoron. They're overeducated fools because they completely discount God, but one day they're going to face God. Or an overaccomplished failure. Think about that. Pastor Joe, that makes no, it's an oxymoron. An overaccomplished failure. They're so accomplished that they, they push God out of their life and then they die in that state. That's a failure. That's a major spiritual fail. God, we have to look at these things. Last few verses, verse 21 in Isaiah 44. It says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Context? Pastor Joe, I'm not, and people do this, I don't, I'm not getting this book. It's so old. Context, very important. The Jews were forcibly expatriated into Babylon. Unfortunately, a lot of them started almost like Stockholm Syndrome. They started serving the Babylonian gods. God's like, return to me. I'm going to free you. I'm going to tell you it before it happens. I'm even tell you who's going to do it. But you, gotta, you, you, you can't stay in that state. You've got to repent. So follow it for what it's saying here. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower, lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the sign of the babblers and drives diviners mad who turns wise men backward and make their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who say to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Again, he's saying this, Jerusalem is in ruins, stones everywhere, the temple's completely destroyed, the Babylonians stole all the gold, and the, the, the skeptic would go, I don't see how this is possible. Well, we're going to get to that. Five out of five is, he speaks about the vastness of the universe, he speaks about you know, his careful creation in the womb, prophecies of the future, Everything comes back to God. Verses 21 through 23, he says to his people, remember. We can also remember, right? He says to his people, remember. Remember how I formed you. Remember how I'm going to deliver you. We can look back at our lives and remember some awesome uh, truths in the Scripture, encouragement in the New Testament. He says, I formed you. Again, them, us. He still loves his people regardless of what age they're in. He says, I haven't forgotten you. A lot of them felt forgotten. That's why God says these things. Sometimes we feel forgotten. But hopefully when you read the Scripture, you say, you know what? That was an emotion. That was a circumstance. God's Word is keeping me grounded. He hasn't forgotten me. 
And we go through dark places, don't we? We go through difficulties. He said, I blotted out your sin, I have redeemed you. Well, he redeemed them physically, but when Christ came, his redemption was universal. Right? More importantly than delivering us physically, he delivered us spiritually. Verse 24 through 25, uh, he will eventually, you know, drive the diviners mad and, and confound the, you know, the counsel of the wise. The, the false prophet, the psychic, the cult leaders, eventually they'll be judged. And a lot of them are exposed here as we speak. Some people don't want to see it and they still say, stay in these things, but how many times does a guy have to make a promise that the world's going to end and it doesn't happen before you finally leave him? You know what I'm saying? Years ago, the Psychic Friends Network <laughs> declared bankruptcy. <laughs> Think about that one for a moment. <laughs> the heading was, they should have seen it coming. <laughs> right? Now, this was a secular newspaper who put that heading up there. Even if somebody with reasonable intelligence, they don't even have to be a Christian, well, you, could see, you could tell people on the phone that what's going to happen tomorrow and... You couldn't see that you were going to go into bankruptcy? Come on. <laughs> you know, you're taking in less than you're putting out. Um, you know, this is, this is what you have. Unfortunately, many people are like sheep. Instead of following God, they'll follow something or someone that they feel is tangible. Verses 26 through 28. Again, God, when God speaks, he's correct 100% of the time. Read Deuteronomy 18. Here he's telling history about Cyrus the Persian uh, roughly 150 years before the man is even born and roughly 200 years before he conquers the known world, including Babylon. And again, (laughs) you start reading the scripture. Cyrus gave these decrees. You know, he found favor with the Jews and vice versa, right? He sends them back to rebuild. He gives them money, gold takes the stuff out of the treasuries of Babylon, gives it to them. Nobody does that. You can't find me any conqueror. They want their people subjugated. They don't want them to have sovereignty. This is like one of the only times it's ever happened in history. Second Chronicles 36 speaks about this. The book of Ezra speaks about this. He also says to the rivers, be dry. Now, we're going to see in the next few chapters, again, this didn't even happen yet, how... The Medo-Persians came, and when the night before, or the night of, they attacked Babylon, the walls were 300 feet wide. The Babylonians actually had a drunken party. Soldiers, the king, because they're like, no one's going to get in here. We're impregnable, and they were, except for the fact that Cyrus the Persian had an idea. And they, it's amazing the ingenuity of the human spirit. He took the Euphrates, which the city was built on, and they used construction, right? And they diverted temporarily the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates is now going in a different direction. The riverbed dries up. The soldiers go down into the riverbed and they get, under, they get into the city from underneath. Nobody ever thought that this could happen. So he's speaking literally before it happened, the details. I want to read this to you. I'm glad I found it. <laughs> it's... Josephus Flavius, the Roman historian, not, a, not an observant and good Jew by any stretch of the imagination. He actually was a turncoat. He's now doing history for the Romans. It has no real excitement for the Jewish people because he turns his back to get a good job. So he says this, and this is in Antiquities of the Jews, uh, 
volume 11. Quote, this was known to Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. So Cyrus conquers the known world, starts going through every people group. He wants to know who's in his kingdom, who his new subjects are. He goes through the prophecy of Isaiah. Accordingly, when Cyrus read his own name, by the way, in Isaiah's scroll and what he did, he read this and admired the divine power. An earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country to rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and the temple of God, just like the Lord said. That's incredible. Even the most battle-conquered, tough, concrete uh, conqueror who actually is faced with the fact that God knew his name, knew he was going to be born over a century prior to it happening, knew the method that he was going to use to get into this place he was conquering. This incredibly hard warrior, his heart melted with the prospect of of the purpose from the living God. And the more you read about history, you see that, that all these things are true. And I'm talking secular history, not even in the Christian books. Just, I just read some that was secular history. This is where things get up close and personal, folks, because through the Word, you are confronted with the living God. If you were not a follower of God yet, now the spotlight is on you, whoever you may be. I don't know who you are, but God knows and you know. God knows and you know. He knows your name. He knew you before you were born. He knew who your parents were going to be. At some point in conception, he put a soul and made it into your, your fleshly body. And now, maybe through this, this message, he's calling you back. I mean... The skeptics, you'd be surprised some of these skeptics, you read them, and they're like Johnny come lately. He's, oh, well, this must have been written after the fact. Okay, find me in history anyone who's conquered the known world and finds one group of people, singles them out, and says, I'm going to give you weapons, I'm going to give you supplies, I'm going to give you gold. Go back to your city, rebuild it, and put a wall up so I can't get in there again. Who does that? So even the skeptic, his argument is foolish. This is God. This is up close and personal. He's trying to get your heart through the message. Yes, contextually, he's speaking to the Israelites, but God hasn't changed. He's also speaking to you this morning if you're willing to receive it. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.